0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. Our scripture reading today is from Micah 7, verses 18 through 20. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the rem- remnant of His inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So thank you, Robbie, Jean. So uh, during the singing, my wife leaned over to me and said, I wish they could just go on and on and on and on, no offense. So, um, no offense taken, I get it, but here I am. Um, and uh, I am uh, thrilled to be able to share the last message from Micah's prophecy. And this is where he uh, piles up the mercy after piling on the conviction. And uh, I'll start this way. If people could use one word to describe you, what would that word be? Um, As you think about that, I'll give you a few examples. Um, LeBron, of course, the word you would say is basketball. Uh, Carrie Underwood, music. Tom Hanks, actor. Kardashians, rich. Jim Gaffigan, funny. Mother Teresa, Merciful. Patty Sauls. Kind. Sorry, I didn't get your permission to do that. Um, Learic Fesco. Teacher. Sandra McCracken. Steadfast. Mac Purdy. Goofy. In the best sort of way. Todd Teller. Kisser. Whether you like it or not. Uh, David Filson. Muscular. Uh, or godly, whichever word you want to choose. Satan, evil. God, what word would you use if you could only pick one word to describe God? Micah asked the question, who is a God like you? And it's rhetorical, and the answer is there's none that can compare to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and ultimately and eventually, of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the one word that Micah uses to describe this God? It's the word hesed. And we get our English translation into two words. Hesed means steadfast love. Uh, it's it's the, the cousin to the New Testament word grace. Hesed, it's all-encompassing. The Bible doesn't just tell us that God is loving. It does tell us that he's patient and that he's kind and a lot of other things, but it doesn't just tell us that God is loving. It actually tells us, the Bible does, that God is love. It's his essence. It's the one word. If you have one word and only one word to describe him, it's that, love, Hesit. unfailing love. And so this morning, I'm going to talk about four features that... Micah, the prophet, draws out to teach us about what God's love is. And those words are angry, forgiving, loyal, and motivating. And so I'm going to start with angry because I don't want you to be distracted uh, as I'm describing the other ones, because that, that's one you probably weren't expecting, that God's love is an angry love. The rest of chapter 7, like so much of this book, consists of the prophet Micah talking about the many reasons why God is angry, especially with some of the leaders among his people. And he says this in verse 3. It's chilling. He says their hands are on what is evil in order to do it well. They are intent to do evil well. They are committed to excel at evil. What a statement. You know, this is a church that has a lot of very skilled, successful professionals in the different spheres where where you all serve in our wonderful city. And to get where you are, you at some point made a certain commitment to do the work, to make the investment, to excel at your craft. And what is being said here is that the leaders of God's people, of God's nation, Israel, made a concerted, costly investment to become great at doing evil. It's chilling. It says in verse 4, The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn hedge. Put no trust in a neighbor. A man's enemies are from his own house. And what this does is it stirs the Lord's indignation and the Lord's vindication, as it says in in verse 9. And so, legitimately, you might be asking the question well, what about love? I thought this was going to be about love, the Hesed, the unfailing, steadfast love of God. My God is a God of love. And this this is the message that I want. And, And so, that's great. That your God is a God of love, but what does love mean to you? Because what Micah is suggesting here is that there is no such thing as love without anger attached to it. Uh, So I'm going to try to convince you of this. Think of the one or two or three people who are more dear to you than anybody else in the world. Think of the people that you would give up your very life for in order to protect them if that's what was necessary. Now, Think about what would happen if they were attacked, bullied, beaten, slandered by another person or group of people. What feelings would that stir up in you? Or if they decided to engage in patterns of behavior in which they harmed themselves, what feelings would rise up in you? If those feelings don't include anger, you've got to ask the question, how dear are they to you, really? Anger is there to protect that which we love and those whom we love. It's a gift. It's an emotion that God has put in us that that is an image of God emotion. And so, especially dear to God, and this is something that Micah draws out throughout his prophecy is the poor, the weak, the vulnerable, the tired, the scared, the guilty, and the ashamed among the people of Israel. And if you attack them as the corrupt leaders are attacking them, if you exploit them as the corrupt leaders have been exploiting them in Israel, God takes it personally. There's a New Testament example of this. There's a man named Saul of Tarsus who would later become the Apostle Paul, but to become the Apostle Paul, It took an encounter with Jesus' anger on the road to Damascus. Saul of Tarsus was headed to Damascus in order to execute as many Christians and imprison as many Christians as he possibly could. And Jesus, who had risen from the dead, makes an appearance to Saul of Tarsus on his way to Damascus. And his words are, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? That's how personally the Lord takes it. When injury is perpetrated against his people, the sharpest words that we have on record from Jesus are in Matthew chapter 23, which is an entire chapter of Jesus excoriating religious leaders in Israel, his contemporaries. He uses words like hypocrites who pile burdens on the people that they're meant to serve, or who perform acts of piety in order to be noticed and praised while neglecting justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Who, cl- who are clean on the outside, but who are filthy in their hearts. <coughs> and the way that Jesus wraps up this convicting speech is not by saying, therefore I hate you, therefore I resent you, therefore I reject you and, and despise you. No. No. This is the place, after Jesus says all of these things, where he goes up to a hilltop and he looks down on Jerusalem, which is the center of the universe for the leaders of Israel, and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, how I have longed to gather you under my care. Now, when you say a name twice in the Scriptures, the repetition communicates affection. King David does this, Absalom, Absalom, my son Absalom, about his estranged son. Or Simon, Simon, Jesus says to Simon Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. Or, Martha, Martha, don't you know I am the resurrection and the life? The one who believes in me, though they die, yet shall they live, concerning her deceased brother Lazarus. Or even, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? That actually became Saul of Tarsus' conversion moment in the beginning of his true life, in the beginning of his ministry, And then in Matthew 23, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. And so it says here in verse 18, to to put an exclamation point on it, the Lord's anger is not forever because He delights in hesed. He delights in unfailing love, steadfast love. He he brings his people low in order to lift them up. He sometimes casts his people out in order to bring them further in than they've ever been. It is impossible to be in covenant with God through faith in his finished work, especially in the finished work of Christ. It is impossible to be in covenant with him and for his anger to mean anything but an energy for restoration and making you a fuller version of of who he's created you to be. There is no resentment, there is no retaliation ever in the heart of God toward his people who are in covenant with him, ever. Now, you wouldn't want and I wouldn't want the prophet Micah for a roommate. There There was this song that they played a long time ago. It was called Cruel to be Kind. Do you remember that song? Some of you older people like me remember that song. Tough love. What I think, you know, the acquired taste of, 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 of the soul for a prophet like Micah, who's kind of in your face, takes you to eventually is that, that, that this, this guy who punches straight between the eyes and he punches right and he punches left and he punches straight ahead, it's not military, it's surgical. There is no sword here, there is a scalpel so anger it's 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 actually a feature of God's love but the second feature is forgiveness verse 18 he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love or hesed we're talking about a full pardon he says that the lord pardons iniquity and passes over transgressions for his inheritance his inheritance that's the word that he's using to describe his people his wayward people, his estranged people, he, 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 he describes it like, like a kid would describe their inheritance. as something I don't fully have yet, but that I know is mine. And it will be forever in my possession. And it will make me rich. And it will be my treasure. And, and it will be my future. It will be my heart. It will be my everything. That's how God is thinking about his estranged people. You know, how easy it is for us to miss this message. You know, we, we so easily leak uh, the love of God and we leak the grace of God. We're, we're like, you know, when, when, when the love of God or the mercy of God or His steadfast loving kindness is, is you know, poured on us, we're like a sponge that takes it, but then, then we just look for somewhere or someone to squeeze it out of us because we just can't bring ourselves to believe it. But when things like guilt and shame and self-loathing, you know, deluge us and get poured on us, we retain it. Right? God does not retain his anger, but we retain our shame. And so God has to somehow convince us that, no, when I want to squeeze that sponge is when you're holding the guilt and shame, not when you're holding the grace and love. I want you to hold the grace and love so there's no more room for guilt and shame. Think think about that. The next time there's a baptism, just think about the person absorbing it. And then think back to your baptism and absorbing the water of His mercy and grace, never to be squeezed out of you again. You know, the famed psychiatrist Carl Menninger once said this about psychiatric patients who had been committed for their mental illness. He said, if I could convince the patients in psychiatric hospitals, that their sins were forgiven, 75% of them could walk out the next day. Now, 25% accounts for those, you know, sort of clinical, you know, biological, you know, products of the fall that, 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 that require just kind of that permanent care. But what he's saying is 75% of people who've been committed this is a world-renowned psychiatrist, 75% of the people who've been committed would be able to walk out if they really believed that shame and guilt don't have a grip on them, that, 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 that regret doesn't have a grip on them like the grace of God does, they would be able to walk out the next day. And it's all about understanding ourselves as the inheritance of God. You know, Paul... Repeats this in Ephesians chapter 1 when he he says to the Ephesians Christians, I pray for you. I pray that the eyes of your heart will be open so that you will know the riches of his glorious inheritance. Not yours, but his glorious inheritance. What's his inheritance? In the saints. You. He doesn't just put up with you. He doesn't just tolerate you. He likes you. He enjoys you. He wants you around. He's fond of you. You're his inheritance. You're his wealth forgiveness. You know, Sinclair Ferguson did this wonderful exposition of Luke chapter 15 and the, the parables about how God is this running father who, who will, will leave the 99 to, to get that one lost sheep or who will, who will leave you know, the 99 coins in order to find the lost coin. Or like the father in the longer parable of two lost sons One of them was lost with his prodigal nature because he ran away from home, squandered his inheritance with wild living, wished his father dead. But then there's an older brother who it turns out is even more lost than the younger uh, brother because because even though he's never left home, he's completely estranged from the father because of his entitlement entitlement and bitterness and self-righteousness. And so Sinclair Ferguson, who's like this pastor that we, <coughs> that we other pastors look up to and wish we could be someday. He said this about what Jesus was trying to do in that parable of the father who welcomes home the estranged son. And Ferguson says, Jesus was underlining the fact that the reality of the love of God for us is the last thing to dawn on us as we fix our eyes on ourselves past failures, present guilt. It seems impossible that the Father should love us. So many Christians go through much of their lives with a prodigal suspicion. Like the prodigal, we have a native inability to believe that salvation is completely by grace and love. We are slow to realize the implications of this. We have the status of daughters and sons but we have the mindset of a hired servant. You know, to this, and this is Old Testament, by the way, in case you've got this idea that the New Testament's all about grace and love and, and the Old Testament is all about law and judgment. This is Old Testament from, from, from the guy who has the reputation of being one of the most judgy pa- uh, uh, prophets in the Old Testament. And he says, Lord, you have cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. All of our sins, into the depths of the sea. They're forgotten. You've trampled them under your feet so that you wouldn't have to trample us under your feet. You've drowned our sins in the sea so that you wouldn't have to drown us. You have done this, which brings us to our next word, loyalty. You also will do something. God is aggressive with his loyalty. You have cast all of our sins into the sea of forgetfulness. You will show faithfulness. You will keep showing up. You will stay constant. You will remain steady. You will never leave us and never forsake us. So how willing is God to be this loyal and to whom? Micah answers it. Verse 19, the Lord will again and again and again and again have compassion on us. Now this again, this word again, brings to my mind Jesus' answer to Peter when Peter asked him, how many times do I need to forgive somebody when they hurt me? And Jesus says, no, Peter, not seven times, as you suggest, even though that's pretty generous, seven times, that's a lot. But I say to you, 70 times 7, which doesn't equal 490 where you, you, know, you keep your tally and when you reach 490 offenses, you don't have to forgive anymore. 70 times 7 was an ancient idiom for infinity. Never stop forgiving as a demonstration of what you've received from me. Never stop. Verse 20, he will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham. So let, let's go through these three words. Compassion, Jacob, and Abraham. So the, the root word for compassion is the same root word for the word womb. Like a mother's womb. There's this, there's this idea of a mother's tenderness. Of a mother's fierce protection of her fragile child. I mean, you, you see it all the time. And for for a lot of you, this is your experience where you know you'll be out and and there'll be a a mother who's expecting and she'll be holding, you know, she'll be cradling her child before the child's even born. This is kind of a standard posture. There's this affection and, and this this instinct, this native instinct to protect and to cradle. Womb. Compassion. That's how God feels. You know, this is why one of the vocations that we, we emphasize in the Nashville Institute for Faith and Work and the Gotham Fellows Program is the vocation of mothering. There have been a lot of people who have gone through the Gotham Program, which is our faith and major faith and, faith and work initiative and intensive, from the vocation of mother. Why is this so? I mean, think about it. Would any of us be here without mothers. If you, think about it, if you think about it, mothers are miracle workers because they take the most fragile creatures in the world who could not survive on their own for even half a day. And they cradle and protect those fragile creatures all the way up until it's time to launch them. Who is God cradling here? Well, he, he brings forth two shining examples. Jacob whose name means deceiver and who is guilty of identity theft with his own brother and who is also filled with sorrow because of the father wound that led him to commit identity theft. From, from, from the day he was born, Jacob lived with the knowledge that he would always and only be his father's second favorite son. And so later on in life, in his adult life, we find Jacob wrestling on the ground with the angel of God. And the angel says to him, let me go. And he says, I will not let you go until you bless me. And what he's saying is, you know that I've never had a real father. And that's on you. So be my father. And I'm not letting you go Until you say yes. And the angel of the Lord said, yes. And I'm going to strike you on the hip. And you're going to walk the rest of your life with a limp. And the limp is there, not punitively, but redemptively, to remind you every time you get up and try to walk who your father is and who it is that enables and empowers you to take that next step as you walk into this new world that I've prepared for you where you will be the father of the 12 tribes of Israel and your name will be remembered forever. And then the second name is Abraham who had his own set of sins. He was a coward. He abandoned his wife in a horrible way to predators in order to protect himself He also had decades and decades of sorrow along with his wife, Sarah, as they wrestled with and struggled with and did battle with infertility, as I know is a, a significant wound for many people in our community. Both of them, in retrospect, in the New Testament, are looked back upon as patriarchs, as icons. They both made it into the genealogy of Christ or in the lineage of Christ in Matthew chapter 1. Which is as if Christ is saying, I'm proud of these people because, because your resume back then was not your accomplishments, it's who you were from. And you would edit out those that you were ashamed of from your lineage. <clears throat> and you would only keep in those who were your pride and joy. And Abraham and Jacob are both there. Just like they are both there in Hebrews chapter 11, which, which lists all of these heroes of the faith from the Old Testament which says so many things to us, one of which, and this is really important, do you have guilt? Do you have shame? Do you have fatigue? Are you afraid? If the answer is yes to any of those things, then you are carrying the fertile soil for God's steadfast love. The worst thing about you poses no threat to you as far as God is concerned. In fact, the worst things about you and the hardest things about what it means to be you are the things that motivate God the most to move toward you in tenderness and compassion, loyalty. Then finally, motivation. You know, Micah just drops a deluge of words in this passage to make guilty, ashamed, fatigued, fearful souls feel stronger. Words like pardon, inheritance, compassion. You've tread our iniquities underfoot. You've cast our sins into the depths of the sea. You're faithful. You're steadfast. You have sworn these things to us. You're a promise keeper. In the truest sense of the word you're, you're, you are one who keeps his vows. I had the privilege this past weekend of, of getting to um, to share some stuff at a at a conference at a church called Tenth Presbyterian in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It was a very short kind of Friday Saturday thing, and um, it 's the only time i 've ever been to tenth, but i 've always wanted to go. Um, because two of my heroes, James Montgomery Boyce, who you've probably read something by James Montgomery Boyce, and then somebody earlier than him, uh, a man named Donald Gray Barnhouse, uh, were long-tenured pastors of Tenth Pres. And there's a story that Barnhouse tells about a husband who was haunted by his promiscuous past before he became a Christian and before he uh, married his wife, And he was haunted so much that he he sat down with his wife and said, I terrify myself. My past is haunting me. I am afraid that sometime, somewhere, in a moment or season of weakness, I am going to be unfaithful to you and it terrifies me. And Barnhouse went on to tell the story about how the wife responded to this. She said, I want you to understand, I want you to understand something. Sin is real, the devil is real, and the day might come when you succumb to temptation and fall into sin. In other words, she's a realist. She's not saying, oh, you're so good and virtuous, you would never. She knows better. And so she says, the day might come when you succumb to temptation and fall into sin, but I want you to know that here in my arms is your home. I want you to know that there is full pardon and forgiveness in advance for any evil that may ever come into your life. To which the man said, I don't know how I could ever be unfaithful to that. I don't know how. Now, I know there are all kinds of complications. And look, if you've been your spouse has been unfaithful and, and, and you can't carry on in the marriage, there is a, a place in Scripture where you have permission to, to be free from that, that bond and that covenant. This isn't prescriptive. This is descriptive of one couple's situation. But the point being that the wife is saying to this husband whose biggest fear is himself, if you leave me, I won't leave you. If you are unfaithful to me, I won't be unfaithful to you. If you are not loyal to me, I will remain loyal to you as Hosea was to Gomer. And his response was, I I, I can't fathom a scenario where I would ever want to be unfaithful to somebody with that kind of steadfast love. So this is how religion motivates. Religion motivates with guilt and shame. It says to you, stop this behavior. Avoid this behavior or else. So there's fear as well. There's guilt, there's shame, and then there's fear. But Jesus motivates with hesed, with steadfast love, with constancy. Jesus says to us, why would you ever stop sinning against me? Why would you ever want to stop (coughs) sinning against me? Here's the reason. Because you don't have to stop sinning against me for me to continue to love you. I dare you to try to sin against that and not be miserable. I dare you to try to be unfaithful to that and not be miserable. Knowing the kind of love that you're betraying by by seeking a lesser love somewhere else. So the next two Sundays, we're going we're gonna to look at this head on. We're going to start a new series in one of Peter's letters. But beforehand, we're going to do a couple of biographical uh, sermons from Peter's life. Next Sunday, Palm Sunday, and then the following Easter Sunday. <coughs> next Sunday, we will look at the way that he betrayed Jesus Christ. And then on Easter Sunday, we will look at how Jesus responded to that betrayal in ways that Peter never would have imagined or expected or any of us would ever imagine or expect. Jesus lovingly and gently restores him, demands no apologies, demands no penance or work your way back up, you know, into my favor. Instead, he feeds him a meal On the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And it's interesting, from that point on, even though Peter would stumble again, as we all do, we see a picture of that in Galatians chapter 2, and the Apostle Paul calls him out for it. He repents, returns to himself. But in general, as his general way of being, Peter's loyalty after Christ restored him with Hesed, with steadfast love, went through. (coughs) <coughs> went through the roof, and, and, and from that point forward, Peter never stopped loving Jesus with a love that was literally stronger than death, and I'll tell you how and for what reason Peter died in the next couple of weeks, but how did his restoration begin? It began with Jesus offering him a meal in the same way that Jesus offers us a meal today, and so before we go to the Lord's table, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that as the Apostle Paul has said, where our sin abounds, your grace, your steadfast love superabounds. Our temporary sins and our temporary sorrows will be swallowed up completely by an everlasting love and an everlasting loyalty and affection and womb-like compassion that's already ours in Jesus Christ. Teach us to live in covenant with you and take this bread and this cup. Would you set it apart? Would you consecrate it? Would you nourish our hearts even as you intend to nourish our bodies with the body and the blood of Christ? Now we pray. And Lord, through this meal and through the gospel that it pictures Would you root out of us any prodigal suspicion that we may have that doubts your love, which is better than life, and is steadfast and unfailing, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.